Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He has trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. There's never been a time when Christians have been closer to the fulfillment of their promises. And yet, there's never been a time when Christians needed more encouragement. So this podcast is entitled, We Are Near, and it's focused on the promises and the blessings that we now have as Christians and the even more amazing promises and blessings that are promised to come our way as disciples of Jesus. A lot of Christians are not quite sure what they have been promised. And the specific promises that go with actual discipleship. Actual discipleship, in my opinion, is reserved for a relatively small group. Jesus addressed us as a little flock, and he said, Fear not, little flock, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Christians are promised the opportunity to share in the government of the world in the future. Jesus said this to his disciples as it was recorded in Matthew, the 19th chapter. In the 28th verse, it says, Jesus said to them, Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Leadership of the world is something that Jesus has predicted and planned for all of his disciples. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 2, Jesus says to his disciples, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? So, the whole purpose of our life as Christians is to learn the character that we need to have in order to be the kind of judge and the kind of leader for the world that Jesus is. We're following in his footsteps so that we can be like him and that we can think like he thinks and we can act with patience and mercy and forgiveness and kindness toward those who are out of the way, towards those who are hard-hearted towards those who have a habit of being violent and mean and murderous even. The human race has a lot to learn, and we have a lot to learn, and we are learning it so that we can turn around in future years and help the world of mankind learn what they need to learn in order to gain life eternal. That's the job we will be given. As Paul put it in 2 Corinthians, he said, You will be able to avenge disobedience when your obedience is complete. The avenging of disobedience 
is the kind of thing that God does in our daily lives, showing us the consequences of our actions. That's the kind of vengeance we're talking about. We're not talking about snuffing people out for their disobedience. God doesn't snuff us out for our disobedience. He gives us tough experiences. He gives us trials and tribulations. He makes us humble by what we go through in our lives. And once we have learned to be soft-hearted and stubbornly righteous, gentle towards others, and pretty darn strict with ourselves, once we've learned that, and once we've learned, as Jesus put it in the last few verses of the book of Matthew, the night before he died, when he washed the disciples' feet in the upper room, he said, you know how the Gentiles act. You know how the rulers of the world act. If they're great, they expect to be served. But he says, it's not going to be that way with you. With you, the greatest ones will be the ones who serve. We need to learn to serve like Jesus serves and be other-centered and kind and humble. A man who was lowly of heart is the one who won our hearts over. And we need to apply ourselves to learning and completing those lessons that we are learning. But the stakes are high. The first thing that makes it challenging to participate in that opportunity is to actually enter the pathway, the racetrack, so to speak, in a good way, in the way that Jesus and the apostles laid out that we should. Jesus says, for example, count the cost. He tells us to take up our cross and follow him. He says, if a man loves him, we will keep his commandments. Paul says, I beseech you, brethren. There he's using brethren in the broad sense of believing in Jesus as their Savior. He says, I beseech you, brethren, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this podcast is dedicated to those who are serious about full surrender to our Lord Jesus, full surrender to his governance and lordship in our lives, complete commitment to the process of obedience and service to other Christians, and as we have opportunity, to the entire household of faith and the world at large. But most of our energy kind of needs to be focused on those who share with us in the hopes that Jesus and the apostles have laid down. And I think that the nearness of the millennial kingdom of Jesus, the completion of prophecy as described in so many places in the Bible, the end times, so to speak, the nearness of that, which is what the subject of my other podcast is, will inform how we look at our Christian duties now as serious, committed Christians. And that's what this podcast is about. We are near. Those of us who are Christians, serious Christians, I'm sure we have disagreements, but we have something ineffable we agree upon, and that is that Jesus is our Lord and Savior who made it possible for us to approach him and serve him with a full assurance of faith. The passage of Scripture I'd like to read 
comes from the first chapter of the book of James. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. And he's talking here about Christians who have faith. He's not talking about people who doubt um, whether there's a God or whether Jesus really died for them or whatever. This is talking about actual Christians who have committed their lives to serve Christ. And he says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts, that is, the Christian who doubts, is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. He's saying that if we in our circumstances as Christians, find ourselves to have been blessed financially, don't rely on that. Don't make that a part of your faith structure. Ignore it. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God can't be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. That would be spiritual sin in our lives. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, so that's that was James um, chapter 1, verses 2 through 18. Now, Christians are a first fruits of God's creatures. And this podcast will present the notion that what we are near is not simply the rescue of Christians and the collapse of the world. If you want to know more about that, listen to It Is Near. That's where we'll look at the prophecy and the plan of God. But here we want to focus on the special needs of Christians at this last part of the age, this last part of the Christian era. And whether we believe that there is a future for the world of mankind or not, we share the same needs in terms of what we need to do in order to be faithful to Jesus. And that's what this podcast is about. We're focusing on the unity that exists between all Christians, regardless of the view they have about the future of the world and the process that God is going through 
as we proceed more and more deeply into the times of trouble that are affecting the human race. We all need help and encouragement, and we need the Bible rightly divided to guide us and protect us in this time. So I hope you enjoy this podcast, We Are Near. And now I'll share a rather brief exploration of Psalm 15. It's a Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. In this episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about five things that I see in that passage. And those five things are what I call the five R's of virtue, righteousness, responsibility, resolve or resoluteness, resilience, and results. Those five things I think are exemplified in this passage. Righteousness is right off the get-go. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor. Those are all examples of the actions and manner of life of a person who is righteous. And if the person is not righteous, then any of the other virtues or or parts of virtue, uh, such as responsibility and resolve and resilience and, uh, and the results that are gotten through consistent behavior, All of those things could be tainted or damaged severely if the person is not, at their core, righteous, as the Bible defines righteousness. So, in getting the setting of this, we have to look at the first verse, and it says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? It's the same word that's translated tabernacle in the King James. And when you think of a tabernacle, you think of, a first of all, of a tent, and you think of it as a special tent, one that is of divine architecture and planning. It uses special materials. It uses golden threads and scarlet-colored linen and blue and, and purple, as well as white, and it is it's a sacred space. So it's asking, who will get to sojourn? And again, sojourning implies temporary, and frequent moving, it's only a way of living until you get to the home that you're headed toward. This is not a question about who gets to live in heaven. It's not a question about who gets to dwell in God's palace. It's a question about who gets to enjoy the benefits of being with God in this life. Who really uh, is welcomed into this sacred space uh, with other people of like mind and in the presence of and in the fellowship with the invisible and often quite silent God who is supervising or promises to supervise the lives of those whom he has called. 
So um, that's the question. Who belongs in the family and the fellowship of God at this time and uh, among God's people? And it says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. That right there is an opportunity for a whole sermon, especially in these days, the part about speaking the truth in our heart. You know, being able to recognize what is true is just not a gimme. It's not a foregone conclusion. We have, in our day, it seems like a concerted and I would say even perverted effort to convince one another of falsehoods, things that cannot be verified, things that do not make sense, and that do cause real damage to people. And uh, I'll leave it to you to decide how this fits and applies in your life, but in my opinion, this is the besetting sin of the hour right now, and that is the inability to face facts and see what is true. When a person has those qualities of being a truth teller and a truth believer, a person who does the right thing and who pays attention to the wisdom literature of the world to try to understand what is right and what should be done, that's the kind of person who is capable of walking or living blamelessly. In the third verse, it says, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. Slander, of course, is it's the ninth of the Ten Commandments, right? Bear false witness. Some Hebrew translations say bear malicious witness. Some imply that this is in courts of law, that telling the truth in a court of law as well. So, in other words, no perjurer. Taking up a false report against another, especially with the intent to do injury, is one of the marks of a really bad person. And so this is saying, not nah, we can't be that way if we want to be part of the righteous and if we want to face our responsibilities as people. Uh, we have to tell the truth, even when it hurts us. The uh, ESV, English Standard Version Bible that I'm reading from, says that nor takes up a reproach against his friend. And so there it's talking about loyalty. It's talking about being kind and not fickle in one's relationships with one's friends, loyalty to one's friends. Then in verse 4, it says, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. That's an interesting juxtaposition of two ideas. The, the response of the righteous person in this passage towards a vile person is to, in their eyes, in other words, in the way they see them, the way they think of them, they despise a person who is vile, a person who is villainous, who is doing bad things or hurting others. But it doesn't say that he says nasty stuff to the person. It doesn't say that he attempts to go out as a vigilante against the person. It just says that in his eyes that person is despised. He recognizes, ah, that's villainy. I want to avoid that in my life. But it says who honors those who fear the Lord. So now we're talking about something that's more public. You can show honor by praising. You can show honor by sending a donation. Uh, there's lots of ways that you can honor someone who is a, quote, fearer of God, a person, a God-fearing person. And if you look in the book of Leviticus and other places, 
you'll see that the, uh, the God-fearing person is one who pays his employees on time and who does not oppress the poor and who remembers children and protects the widows. Those are the people who recognize that those folks who have less of this world's goods or who are in pain or suffering in some way, those folks are just as much a part of God's world as we are. And if we are God-fearing, we will recognize that in a good world, in a righteous world, everybody would have everything that they need. And we are not in that world yet. At the end of verse 4, it also uh, introduces the notion of resoluteness, resolve. And it says, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, when we say something, we promise something, we commit to something, we carry out what we have promised, even if it turns out that it cost us more than we thought it would. And then when we look at the last verse of the section, it says, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Okay, putting out one's money at interest means to profit from another person's need and another person having less than we do. The Hebrew concept of righteousness, tzedakah, involves sharing our excess, our benefits, with others for no charge. We do not pay for our privilege of being more well-off at this time and this season of life than they are. But I think that it also fits the notion of resilience because the seasons of life are often like the tides that I can see outside my window here. They go up and they go down, and there's a cyclical nature to all economic activity. And so resilience is the ability to prosper at high tide as well as low tide, uh, the ability to do good things over a long period of time and live well within one's means so that we can weather the storms and handle the, the slow times and the difficulties of life, the times when we might be sick or the times when we might have responsibilities that are wearing us down, breaking us down. Resilience is the ability to face through those experiences, and the evidence of that resilience is often seen best when we look at how we handle ourselves in our good times. And in our good times, we do not charge interest to those who we loan money to or give money to. We don't take advantage. We don't make them pay us for being good to them. And uh, that is the same notion as in the second half of that Hebrew couplet when it says, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. That's the same notion. A bribe is basically a gift that someone gives you to do what they want you to do. Or you might say it's a gift that is designed to cloud your judgment and make you do something that you shouldn't do. And taking a bribe against the innocent is charging interest on the money you give them, so to speak. It's taking a payment, a profiting from what should be just a decision to do what's best. We should make all our decisions based on the principle that's involved. We don't want to give money to someone who will misuse it or will be injured by the gift nor do we want to withhold money from someone that we could help who would benefit from the gift. And those are principles that have to be weighed. 
soberly and uh, clear-headedly. And then it says, he who does these things will never be moved, and that is results. The results of doing all of the things that are described in the chapter are not necessarily material prosperity, but stability and a, a certain gravitas in one's life. And that's, I think, what he says when he says, thee will never be moved. How can somebody never be moved? Only if the God of the universe has put them in a stable position. That's the only way that anybody could never be moved. Otherwise, we are like the grass. We are like the flowers that fade all the time. And the only way we can become a rock is if the maker of things makes us into a rock and makes us into a stable and uh, reliable personage. Okay, so that's the brief uh, 20-minute, I guess, rundown of Psalm 15. I hope that you enjoy this first installment in my new podcast, and I look forward to being able to share with you quite often. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the first episode of We Are Near. All Christians are near the completion of their hopes and the promises of God. And I hope that if you are a serious Christian who has committed your life to serving Jesus and you are attempting to follow in his footsteps and be a disciple, may God bless you in that effort and I hope that this podcast will prove useful to you because we are near the end of our earthly pilgrimage. Thank you.